0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Hello. Nate Hopkins. Hi, there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a reminder, go check out maxcoders.io. We have a special guest this week, and that is Ross Kaffenberger.
1: Hello. Did I say your name right? You got it right. Thank you.
0: I just sounded it out, so. It's a long one. Yeah. Do you want to give us a brief introduction, who you are, who you work for? What you do in your spare time, favorite flavor of ice cream, all the important stuff, right?
1: That's important. My name is Ross Kaffenberger. Uh, I am a software engineer at Stitch Fix. I've been developing web applications for about the last 12 years, uh, mostly in Ruby, a lot in JavaScript as well. Uh, i bounced around at a number of startups, but I really enjoy working at Stitch Fix, uh, especially because of the remote work opportunity. Also like uh, triathlon, I've got a young son at home, so he keeps me busy as well. Nice.
0: You said you're training for triathlon?
1: Uh, that's right. That's what my main hobby is. So that uh, it's a lot of running, swimming and biking.
0: Now, are we talking Ironman or are we talking like uh, Olympic yes. distance or whatever?
1: Uh, yeah, well, Ironman is the one that I like to focus on, but I'll do everything in between to prepare for that.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to claim that I'm doing a third of an Ironman. I'm running my first marathon on Saturday. So,
1: Oh, congrats. All right. Well, good luck with your, uh, your race. I'm sure the training has been challenging.
0: Yeah, it has. And it got real cold the last week or so. And so running outside is a lot less fun.
1: <laughs> I'll just say that. That's right. Well, it, with the marathon, it does help if it's a little cooler. But yeah, I've done a few hot races and, and those definitely uh, aren't fun.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll let everybody know how it goes next week if I show up and I'm still alive. So. All
1: right. Well, best uh, of luck.
0: Yeah. Anyway, we've got on our uh, docket this week, we're talking about uh, Webpack. Specifically in Rails. And I think the way you put it is surviving Webpack. So is it really that deadly?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think uh, I'm trying to sort of represent what I understand to be uh, a challenging subject. Uh, I know that many folks, when they first encounter Webpack, may be confused or unsure or overwhelmed about how it works, how to get it to do what you would like it to do. And I think, especially coming from a Rails background like myself, we're usually familiar with how Sprockets works and how uh, Sprockets is used to bundle assets for the browser. And given that Rails 6 is uh, adopting Webpack by default, I think the switch to Webpack is on uh, maybe on uh, uh, the mind of developers who are working in Rails applications now or maybe building new ones in the future. So given that switch, uh, I think they're just there is sort of a uh, maybe some trepidation about the learning curve although uh, rails does try to hide some of that complexity from the developers with their webpacker gem but uh, i have had my own experience uh, with a, a team in trying to upgrade our asset pipeline to to use webpack and uh, i encountered a few challenges along the way so a lot of it i sort of have felt that it's helpful to share uh, some of what i learned to potentially help other developers who may encounter similar situations. And I, I've put together a, a talk and a blog post that sort of captures some of the information that uh, I would have liked to have seen before I started down that journey. So I do enjoy using Webpack, but there have been times when I've gotten frustrated. So the survival instinct is, is real.
0: Yeah, I think it's also worth pointing out that Rails developers aren't the only ones that don't manage their own Webpack setup. You know, I've, I've done podcasts on Angular, React, and Vue for years. They all tend to have some kind of setup mechanism that more or less sets up and manages Webpack for you anyway. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, well, it's interesting that, uh, well, in the Rails community, we hear the term convention over configuration. And especially in the early versions of Webpack, I would say there is much more of a preference for flexibility and there is a heavy emphasis on the configuration aspect uh, for just using Webpack out of the box. So, yes, these frameworks, I think, do a lot of work to provide that convention for us that Webpack doesn't give us by default.
2: Is that starting to change with Webpack? I, I, it seems like they were trying to introduce a, a more sensible, sane set of defaults that you could just kind of run out of the box with. Is that true?
1: There is, a, to some extent, some sane defaults. Uh, so with the latest version of Webpack, at least that I've tried Webpack for, in previous versions, uh, I don't believe Webpack uh, would do much at all. You would have to tell it which files to read as source, where you wanted the output of a Webpack build to go. Out of the box, though, I don't believe Webpack provides you much in terms of what kind of transformations you want to have happen along the way. So there's still quite a bit of work that you need to do to get, say, a production-ready build set up if you were to do just vanilla Webpack configuration.
0: Yeah, and I've set up a vanilla Webpack configuration, not on a Rails app, and this was like Webpack 3, and that was painful. And having done that and having had some exposure to some of the features that you can use Webpack for, I will say that working with the Webpacker gem was much, much easier.
3: I think that we're going to be in a transition period. So right now, there are several hiccups with Webpacker that I think makes it difficult for developers to use. One, it is a change in technology. So they're having to learn something new. They can't just throw everything in the app JavaScript's folder or the app assets JavaScript's folder anymore. Because if you started a new Rails 6 application, that's gone. And then you have pre-compiling the assets. Luckily, Rails, I think, has done a great job at making it as innovative as possible if you just follow a certain you know, few little rules. But it is a change in tech, which that means there's something new to learn, You have to deviate from what you've known and has, have always done since like Rails 2 or 3, and now do, do something different.
1: I agree that that there is uh, definitely a lot to learn there and uh, one area where I think the webpacker project could definitely use some help is in the the guidance to make that transition. There are some mm-hmm. guides in the repo as I understand it there isn't an official rails guide that we might get with something like active record or you know the routes interface for for rails so I think that could be an area of improvement there. But generally speaking, yes, there, there is, even though Webpacker does try to hide a lot of the complexity of getting set up, there is still a bit to learn to get started.
3: And I think then we come across, okay, so we're not starting off a new Rails 6 application. We have a Rails 4 or a Rails 5 application. And we want to get it up to date with the latest version of Rails just so we're maintaining long-term support. Well, how do we go from our Rails five application to Rails six with the new Webpacker? And I know that there are two major hiccups. One, your app assets JavaScript's folder. So what do you do with all that stuff? Because it doesn't exist in Rails six. And I think to address that issue, I would simply include it in my Rails 6 app, you know, once I upgrade uh, to Rails 6, I would keep that folder in there and then just slowly migrate those files over into Webpacker eventually. And then you also have the annoying thing with gems. And I think that this problem won't exist five years from now, but it was really nice with Sprockets to just be able to install a gem and then in the JavaScripts to just include that file or whatever, the require for that gem to include the JavaScript assets. It's not until these gems get caught up and include a manifest or a package JSON that we can then pull from NPM are we going to have life a little bit easier. There are workarounds for it, but it's a workaround.
1: For sure. And a big part of my experience in getting started with Webpack was doing a a migration very much like you describe. In my experience, uh, yes, we did do sort of an iterative approach. Uh, I one benefit of the way Webpacker is set up in Rails is that you can use Sprockets alongside Webpacker. So to make the transition, you could potentially move packages, libraries, uh, your own modules over one by one, or at your convenience, so that they're maybe initially bundled by Sprockets as you get used to. Um, how Webpack works, moving those over, testing out those deployments to uh, understand if there are hiccups in the build process. And some of the challenges, though, then arise in, well, if you need those JavaScript components to communicate with each other or to be able to reference something like jQuery in your remaining Sprockets assets, if you've now started loading it through Webpack, you know, so some of those pieces are not necessarily well Described and and that's that's part of what I've tried to help uh, capture in in the the blog post that I put out about our transition. I'm assuming
2: that was with your time with Stitch Fix, right? Can you give us an idea of what the app structure was like? I mean, were you using React or Vue components? Was it all jQuery? Can you give us a, a sense of how large the JavaScript was and and what you know what the typical architecture or the the general architecture was? of the project you ported over.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so uh, this was at a previous company I worked at. It's called LearnZillion. So it's a just an education platform. It's very JavaScript heavy. When I started the project, we had a lot of JavaScript files in our app assets, JavaScript directory. Um, we were using Knockout, which is an older JavaScript framework. And uh, we eventually transitioned over to Vue. But part of the process of switching to Webpack helped enable that. I would estimate we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 JavaScript source files. We had a fairly large number of libraries that we pulled in that might have come from external script or external uh, links or through like the Rails gem type of uh, includes. So we had things like jQuery, the Knockout library, a bunch of jQuery plugins, a few um, additional pieces like the CK editor, which is a really large, customizable WYSIWYG editor. Many of these libraries are, were not uh, Webpack friendly at the time, and by that I mean they weren't necessarily all module aware, like uh, more newer packages are today. We also did in our initial bundling process is we separated out the vendor libraries into a separate bundle from our own custom application code uh, because we didn't change. Our versions of jQuery or Knockout very often, we would essentially have the same you know, asset digest to point to when we would do multiple deploys with this vendor bundle. So it was a really nice way to not force our users to download a new bundle every time, even though we might iterate on our application bundle. So the first thing we did was uh, when we installed Webpack was to move those vendor libraries over to an analogous. Webpack bundle for these vendor libraries. And we started testing this one by one. So we would move something like jQuery, which was a fairly highly used library throughout our system. We moved that over and uh, we could actually use Webpack to expose jQuery to the global scope. One reason we needed to do this was that many of our sort of custom JavaScript uh, modules assumed that jQuery was available in the global scope. And Sprockets, by default, isn't module-aware, so we we didn't have require jQuery statements in our custom code. We also had a lot of type of JavaScript snippets littered throughout our templates uh, all over our Rails application. So all of these snippets assumed the presence of some globally uh, available function, whether it be jQuery or our own... Custom JavaScript, which we assign to some global module like app dot. Here's my editor function. So by moving these vendor libraries over, we sort of could contain each deploy as one set of libraries we might change. And we had to add some configuration in some cases to make things available in the global scope, since that isn't something that Webpack does by default. And then we started moving our individual application components over. And a few things we did to continue to make those components available in the global scope when necessary is that uh, you can tell Webpack to export certain modules to the global scope. And so basically, we treated our application bundle like a library. So we could actually reference the Webpack modules that we had written in the global scope as well. So simply, we could do some find and replace when we ever removed certain JavaScript package of our own over. Uh, But we did encounter some issues that came up with this process. And a particularly uh, uh, interesting story was when I started moving jQuery plugins over. So so jQuery plugins, uh, for those who aren't familiar, will use an API that jQuery provides to essentially attach functionality to the, the global jQuery object. So that was a common way we would write Uh, JavaScript uh, in sort of the old days in Rails, in my experience, sort of pre-React and and all these other frameworks. And so we still used a lot of these jQuery plugins within our knockout code and even as we've moved to Vue. And uh, I think that the sort of notion of of modifying a, a global variable and extending functionality like this isn't necessarily as common with these frameworks or in the Webpack world. As we started moving plugins over, we noticed that sometimes our plugin functionality would just disappear as if it wasn't included at all. So for example, we used a older jQuery plugin called Chosen that I think it's built by the team at Harvest. And uh, I think it's written in copy, copy script. And if I, I looked at the source code and it doesn't use any any sort of module definition. It sort of just exports a jQuery plugin to the global scope. We also used other jQuery plugins that were more modern and did did some work to try to provide some uh, awareness of different module loaders like CommonJS or uh, AMD within their source code. So what we were doing uh, at one point where we were adding the, the chosen plugin with some other jQuery plugins is that the chosen plugin just disappeared at some point. And what we found out is that we had actually require jQuery twice. So we had this vendor in this application bundle and Webpack didn't understand that we were using them both on the same page. That's not an issue we had in Sprockets because Sprockets doesn't have any sort of intelligence when it starts pulling in modules. In this case, Webpack saw some more modern plugin and said, hey, this is your application bundle. It says require jQuery deep within the source code of this plugin. So we're going to pull in jQuery to this application bundle, even though there's this other vendor bundle that we were also building that we've sort of manually imported jQuery as well. Turns out that we had two jQuery's present on our page. And if we're uh, trying to assign a plugin to a global JavaScript variable, only one of those can win. So whenever that second jQuery got imported, it clobbered everything that we had attached to the first instance of jQuery. So a lot of The pain points, I think we could probably sort of stem back to the fact that we were thinking in sort of a Sprockets mindset when we started creating these Webpack bundles. And we had to sort of learn the hard way that the way that we did things in Webpack isn't necessarily the way, sorry, the way that we used to do things in Sprockets isn't necessarily the way that we would want to do things in Webpack. Otherwise, some of these assumptions we had made about how things work might surprise us. Definitely the use of of global references uh, came back to bite us. And so we gradually moved away from that. And we also learned that there are a lot of amazing things Webpack can do to prevent you from getting into this situation. Uh, So sort of had to take a step back, though, first and understand more deeply uh, how Webpack worked in order to debug those kinds of problems as we started moving things over.
2: So if somebody's in a position where they are tasked with upgrading an older Sprockets app into Webpack, what's your recommendation in terms of strategy? Because I know that you guys had entertained maybe doing it all in one fell swoop and just kind of flipping the switch or doing it piecemeal. And is it just the size of of the JavaScript that you've got, you know, the custom JavaScript in the app that dictated that? Or what was it that tilted you in that direction? And how would you advise somebody Is it all just based on app size?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So app size uh, was certainly some of our consideration. I think because we considered ourselves Webpack newbies to start out with, I think there was some nervousness about trying to do it all at once and running into a situation where maybe we had a long running branch where, where there's active development in our application and we might fall behind and run into merge conflicts. I think the nice thing about doing it the iterative way, although it may have extended the time it took to actually, you know, add each individual piece and then deploy and test and all that, is we were able to learn as we we went, so to speak, and, and sort of pick up some expertise piece by piece and sort of iterate on our own understanding and actually go back and fix some of the initial assumptions we had made. Uh, We could also do things like isolate the uh, certain commits where something went wrong. I had to use uh, Git bisect, I think, on a number of occasions in order to sort of figure out where a certain problem arose. And having, having this more piecemeal approach was definitely helpful with that. And I think it also just allowed us to sort of work into the learning curve. But I would say for any particular team, there's no one right way to do it. I think app size could certainly be consideration. I would say also, you know, your comfort level with Webpack and how it works is another big consideration as well. I think there's definitely room for trying to switch all at once if the, say, app size is palatable or the expertise is there. We also had some pretty strict uh, service level agreements um, that we were trying to adhere to. And and so I was very nervous about any sort of downtime that might happen with a bad deploy. So, a lot of those considerations sort of went into that. And we you know, to, to credit the the team, we were given the leeway to to take our time and do it the the right way, so to speak. And we weren't rushed into making just certain decisions or time wasn't as much of a factor. And I think all those things should be considered when choosing one of those strategies.
2: You had mentioned that Webpack tends to move kind of fast and Webpacker uh, by extension does as well. How much did Webpack change throughout that process underneath you?
1: Yeah, it, it did change quite a bit. Uh, I think uh, an interesting thing about the Webpacker project is is that uh, it's, it's also, I think, very helpful to get you started. It can be rough around the edges as you start doing more advanced things. As uh, Chuck said earlier, you know these frameworks, we uh, try to... Hide complexity away from you and set up set up the Webpack configuration on your behalf. And Webpacker definitely follows uh, other sort of Rails conventions in that in that it's set up the way that that Basecamp would probably set up their their Webpack build, but it might not necessarily align as well with with uh, you know the needs of your own team. The Webpacker project uh, also was behind a little bit from where Webpack was, so uh, the Switch from Webpack 3 to Webpack 4 was a pretty significant change, even for you know, Webpack plugin developers. So I think it took at least a year before Webpacker uh, was able to support Webpack 4. So, despite the fast moving um, nature of the project, uh, there was a little bit of breathing room there between upgrades. But uh, certainly, while we were doing this migration on the earlier stages of Webpack 3, there were a number of changes that uh, uh, came out and some of them were were our own contributions back to the Webpacker project. As we encountered issues, it it was definitely, um, so it's very much an easy project to wrap your head around once you understand sort of the key pieces of what Webpacker does. And once uh, we were able to sort of work through some of our own challenges, contributing back to the project was a very helpful way for for us to sort of get Webpacker to do what we needed it to do. But that's definitely something that uh, needs to be taken into consideration. You know, if you're considering whether to switch to Webpack at all, I think just generally, you have to be aware that it's an investment. It's uh, like many libraries uh, in the JavaScript community. uh, There's a lot of heavy development. Webpack is a really widely used project. And there's a number of optimizations, changes in, ways of doing things, uh, changes in configuration styles or even APIs that happen from uh, upgrade to upgrade. So all these things will be sort of felt by your team as you try to work through the sort of corollary Webpacker upgrades uh, as you go. For us, during the time of the project, the upgrades weren't as necessarily significant and I think that team is still waiting to upgrade to Webpack, Webpacker 4, uh, which is uh, was recently released. But there's certainly a nature of having to continually revisit the Webpack documentation and prepare yourself for these upgrades, which uh, aren't necessarily all set it and forget it. One thing that
0: I'm curious about, too, is that, and, and when I was playing with Webpacker in Rails, incidentally, I also sort of felt like I was running two systems, right? So you have to do the yarn install stuff and the bundle install, gem install stuff. And I found that it wasn't super onerous, but it did feel like I had to kind of take off my Ruby hat and put on my JavaScript hat for a minute to get stuff done. I don't know if that squares up with your experience.
1: Yeah, well, there's certainly uh, confusion that, that happens. So, uh, you know, sometimes when I sort of peruse the issues on Webpacker, it's less about, you know, some bug and more about, hey, I need help with how this thing works. And a lot of it will come down to uh, context switching, like, like you've suggested from Ruby to JavaScript, or even the uh, sort of nature of switching from a Sprockets mindset to uh, one in Webpack. I think there's certainly... That mental overhead as well. And in our experience, I think that that can kind of decrease over time the more time you spend with it. I definitely feel like though, what what tends to happen, at least on the teams that I've worked on with Webpack, is maybe there's a an individual or a handful of individuals that are doing more of the Webpack kind of work or have more of the expertise. And whereas other folks on the team Maybe aren't necessarily thinking about those things. They're more concerned with feature development or, you know, other other concerns that are more d- directly tied to the business. For example, and so having that continual knowledge sharing and reminders to folks on the team. Oh, yeah, this is something we you need to do explicitly to make things happen. We would start uh, adding in pieces to like development scripts that would just do the yarn install for you if something changed. So. Uh, to try to decrease some of that mental overhead uh, across the team, there are some things like uh, an integrity check that the rails build will, or the startup environment will will do for you that can sometimes be a headache and get in the way, so it might benefit folks to turn that off to not have to think about it in development so there 's certainly a sort of aspect of getting the right feel for what makes sense for your day to day development and also how best to you know, work in the processes so you don't have to think about these things enough because, uh, as much because it does detract from some of the brain power you want to focus on moving your business forward.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. One other thing that I'm curious about, and I never did get this far with Webpacker, is that a lot of people wind up pulling in plugins for Webpack so that you can do different things with it. How much work is that with Webpacker? And where do you put those Webpack configs?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, what's interesting is uh, uh, having also used other frameworks like like uh, React and Vue. Uh, every project manages this differently, so there's some default configuration you get that actually might differ per environment, like development and production. And for each of these frameworks, there's some API. Unfortunately, there's not necessarily just one way to do it, but there is a environment. Object that's provided by the Rails Webpacker NPM package that you can modify sort of object-oriented style to um, add plugins or even modify options. Uh, For example, you might not like the options provided in production for how the white space compression is handled. So you might provide some custom JavaScript that would live in your Rails config directory for your production environment, you might import that environment object that the Rails Webpacker project provides, and you'd have to manipulate the, you know, the functions on that object in order to bend it to your will. There, there are there is some documentation and markdown in the Rails Webpacker project on examples on how you might do this. Some things that we did for our own purpose, we um, we added uh, in development a. Package called Webpack Bundle Analyzer, which I would highly recommend, or something of that nature, in order to inspect visually the contents of your Webpack build. So that's actually one way that we diagnosed our two jQueries problem. We didn't know what was going on. We eventually discovered this uh, an- analysis tool. And we would, uh, in our development project, we just simply environment plugins add this. Uh, bundle analyzer. And when we would start a development environment, it actually spins up a, yet another web server that that sort of gives you a visual D3 type of uh, map of all of the relative sizes of the packages in each of the bundles that you might be outputting. You can diagnose, you know, bundle size, bundle contents. If you're not sure why something isn't included or you might be surprised where, where something's included. It's a great way to visually sort of understand what's what's happening. Another plugin we used, um, we liked the um, old Sprockets way of doing things where you could simultaneously output assets that did not contain the asset digest. So in production, you get uh, application and then some digest on the end of the, the JavaScript name. And we also wanted sort of a, duplicate output that would just be application.js for a certain contexts. And uh, we provided a plugin uh, of our own making this just, just simply to take all the outputs and simply also write them to a, a name of our choosing that didn't contain the, the digest as well. So just generally, these plugins are really helpful to hook into any part of the, the webpack build to augment what's happening either to the files or how the output is structured. There's a lot of plugins that the Webpacker projects provides out of the box, and there, there may be, like I've described, some use cases where it makes sense to add in or modify the existing ones to, to meet your
3: needs. You know, that's one thing that bugs me about Webpack. So it's not even really Webpacker's fault, it's more Webpacks. But if you start a new Rails 6 application there's only going to be about six, maybe seven Yarn dependencies, so libraries that's getting brought in. So when you do a Yarn install and then inspect the Node modules folder, it is littered with over 700 items. So that could not only, you know, just angers me, but also worries me that, what if someone pulls a left pad on one of these packages and they just, you know, rage quit it or yank it from the NPM store, then what's gonna happen when I try to deploy this Rails application or something? We could run into a hitch and it would take a while to figure out. So one thing that they really need to do is reduce the number of dependencies somehow. Either take on the responsibility of maintaining those packages and just slim it down a bit or something. You know, I don't have the answer, but It is something that I find really worrisome. And the other thing is, with the six or seven packages libraries that we have by default, why the heck don't we have in the node modules folder a dependencies folder and then just dump all those 700 items into that dependency folder and then we just have our listed six or seven or whatever libraries we've added in? just so if I wanted to go find one of them to look in the dist folder to see what assets are included in this library so I can in- import them in, it's going to be easy to find instead of having to scroll through 800 items now.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, those are both good points. I think with the yanked packages issue, uh, I, I would hope that the build would at least fail so you wouldn't be deploying, say, bad uh, set of assets. But uh, in the case of, of getting a better insight into what dependencies that you have, I think that would be really helpful. I mean, I, I suppose it's sort of a reflection of, of the sort of the JavaScript community mentality, sort of in a nutshell right there, that there are so many small, very modular pieces of code, and that lends itself to a higher number of, de- of separate dependencies. And especially when a project like Webpacker uses other projects that have their own plugin system, like Babel, uh, comes in with scores of plugins itself that uh, are sort of hard to understand at first what what all these things are doing. I think especially when you start diving in, it can be overwhelming to wrap your head around it. I'd say the one thing I do like about the sort of standard Node modules folder setup is that I can sort of peruse that source code right there in my own, my own directory and debug sort of at the, you know, the source level uh, when there's something going on I don't fully understand. And that, that was definitely helpful to have that sort of right there at my fingertips when I encountered some of these challenges as I was porting our, uh, our JavaScript build to, to Webpack.
2: Yeah, I'd say that that, that challenge, Dave, is, is very systemic to, I mean, it's just in part of the the, the ethos of, of JavaScript and NPM in general. I don't, we may see one group maybe come up and, and take ownership and stewardship over a large swath of packages, but even that almost feels kind of counter counter to the ethos of the JavaScript ecosystem and community. Like, I don't, I don't imagine it's going to change.
3: You know, one thing that I will praise Webpack for is being able to manage versions of JavaScript libraries. So back in the olden days, you found a JavaScript library that you liked. Well, you downloaded the source code, the minified or the raw source. You added it into your vendor assets, JavaScripts, and then you're now locked into that version. If you wanted to upgrade it, well... You just went back to that maintainer's website and downloaded the new version and then pu- pulled it in. Then a few years ago, railsassets.org came around, and they basically created Ruby gems around the NPM packages that you could then just pull down that gem, you know, just add it into your gem file, and then start using the JavaScript library right away. But that also then added just one extra level of dependency that your application relied on, which I never really cared for, but it was better than the alternative of having to manually update my packages. Now with Yarn being our package manager, one cool trick that I really haven't found in much documentation, you can do a Yarn space upgrade dash interactive And that'll give you a console little GUI that you can then select and see which versions are out of date of your libraries that you've added in. And then what's the latest version? So you can then just select which ones you want to update. That's also going to let you know, hey, you may need to go around your application and test these specific areas where you're using those libraries.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example of why I'm excited about the direction that Rails is going and embracing These new JavaScript libraries. Just generally speaking, that the JavaScript community can do JavaScript better than the Ruby community can do JavaScript, in the sense that like some of those extra challenges of doing things like Rails asset gems is not necessarily the most user-friendly way to manage those JavaScript dependencies. And there's a lot of cool stuff that uh, you can sort of unlock as uh, you make, you know, this sort of lower-level. Uh, access, um, a part of the, the development uh, process. So I think uh, I'm, I'm you know, personally really uh, enjoying this process of learning more about uh, the system, even though it can be frustrating at times. Hey, folks, I want
0: to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud 66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told that I had a Rails app, and off it went. It set it all up, it does the deployment, and... Now that I have other developers working with me on PodRanch, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice. It's straightforward. It has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code Rogues. that's all one word, capital R, capital R, Ruby Rogues for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com.
2: In fairness to Webpack and Webpacker, I mean, the asset pipeline back in the day was no picnic either. It, sometimes you'd get your pathing wrong and it would it could cause just as much frustration although it's a vastly simpler tool than than what Webta- webpack does today i'm curious what gotchas are there what are the big gotchas to watch out for
1: oh, well there's certainly quite a few i think there's one in particular that i see pop up time and time again for rails developers adopting webpack is where to actually put your source code i think there're uh, often issues i see popping up uh, about folks saying that their their build times are are getting Longer and longer, uh, despite only having added a few files, and what happens is uh, just sort of a simple uh, misunderstanding of where the JavaScript code should go in uh, your Webpack setup. So, when you install Webpack for the first time, it will create a JavaScript folder under app, and it will place a application.js file in another file called packs. So, you have an application.js under app/javascript/packs. And the idea of that pack file, uh, that application.js file under packs, is that it's the entry point for all of the JavaScript that you're going to add to your Webpack build. What you end up doing, though, is if you add additional files to that packs folder, Webpacker will instruct Webpack to treat each of those files as a separate entry point in a dependency graph. So one thing I see is folks moving their entire set of JavaScript, which could be hundreds of files, directly into that packs file. And it, it works fine in development because, hey, I'm only loading that application.js file in my in my uh, application layout, and that dependency graph is working fine. Uh, but what PAC has done is, for each one of the files in, in the subtree of that PAX folder, uh, it's created separate output files, separate dependency graphs in memory you can see that if you inspect the manifest file that is in the public directory, uh, which is a really helpful debugging tool. There's a way that uh, Rails knows what's been output from Webpack, and it's a JSON file in the public directory called manifest JSON. And that's one way to sort of diagnose whether or not uh, you're outputting what you expect to. And a simple fix is just to make sure that only files that are intended to be the entry points for your Webpack builds are in that packs folder. And you can probably put that JavaScript just about anywhere else besides there. Some other things just to look out for would be to understand just how you're using uh, global scope uh, inside of um, your uh, Webpack modules or your JavaScript modules in your Webpack build. That's one thing that, as I mentioned, bit us when it came to making jQuery globally available Another trick you can do that we ended up uh, doing instead of uh, exposing jQuery in the global scope, we we did something called module shimming that is possible in webpack by because it's such a powerful tool, there's a number of ways you can transform the files and it's it's more than just say uh, job uh, es6 to something the browsers can understand, or there's a way to actually allow Webpack to inspect each of the files for certain variables. So like something like the, the dollar sign and jQuery. And if that dollar sign is not required to force it to, to actually, what what PAC can do is insert those require statements in those JavaScript files for you at build time. And instead of using a global reference, you're now using something local to that module. I think that's something that's, uh, that's really helpful. Some other gotchas certainly came with our approach to manually code splitting. So that vendor and application bundle that we created by separately creating a vendor bundle and, re- and requiring jQuery and Knockout and our, our custom code and our application bundle. What we were not doing is telling Webpack how to understand that those bundles were being used on the same page. I think what a typical Webpack build uh, assumes is that every entry point file, like application.js, is going to be used just in one context. It might be helpful for you to think of it more along the lines of, say, context of your application. Like You might have an application bundle or an admin bundle or a visitor bundle. These are different parts of the site. What we had done is sort of split our bundles over what we thought would be a better caching strategy. And it turns out that Webpack doesn't want you to do things that way or you can get into trouble like we did with our two jQuery problems. So the uh, a better approach is to embrace this notion of understanding that Webpack can understands how to do code splitting for you uh, as long as you instruct it to do it the right way. Um, I wouldn't recommend going down a path of splitting out your vendor and application bundle until you learn more about the split chunks API in Webpack 4. Uh, another thing to th- to uh, maybe more advanced topic for code splitting would be using dynamic imports. So this is a way to decrease the uh, initial size of your bundle by asynchronously loading things. So for example, uh, let's say there's just one page on your site that, uh, where you need to render PDFs. Well, the PDF.js library is a great tool to render PDFs uh, in HTML. Problem is it's a really, really big library and forcing your users to download that on every page would probably not be a great performance. Uh, it would be probably a big performance cons- concern for your users. So uh, instead, what you could do is use a dynamic import, which is essentially an import function that returns a promise that may only trigger in the context of, say, this particular page of the site. And the PDF.js bundle, Webpack will treat that as a separate piece of output, but it will also do the work to. Download and and parse and evaluate that file for you, depending on where this import, you know, uh, this dynamic import is located. So it can be a really, actually, a really easy way to decrease this, the the size of these bundles. And I think it's uh, one of the real golden uh, additions of what Webpack can do. And I would certainly encourage people to use that more as a style of splitting out your code rather than trying to go the route that we did of. Splitting out a vendor and application bundle, although that's possible to do, it does require some mental overhead to understand a bit more about how to uh, get those depth separate bundles to understand that they're on the same page. And it's a bit of a confusing topic that uh, certainly was a big gotcha for us when we started.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of nice that they're putting tools, more tools now in, into Webpack to help not just visualize like, what you're putting over the wire, but, but optimize it as well. I think that was one of the the traps a lot of early adopters fell into as they were just just bundling up these giant you know library sets and sending them down to their clients.
1: Yeah, and and it's interesting because that's that's kind of the Rails way, right? You're encouraged just to put everything in an application bundle and 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 forget about it, but I think uh, the the webpack philosophy is that smaller is better essentially and I think there's much less emphasis placed on something like Long-term caching, which is a big, you know, a big component of the Sprockets uh, asset pipeline, is that you don't actually get a decent solution for a long-term caching out of the box with with Webpack. There, you have to do some work to set up how to do the the hashing, and Webpacker will do some of that for you. But then you can run into problems again, splitting up manually uh, your bundles on across say lines like a vendor or uh, application JavaScript. So there's some additional understanding of how Webpack works under the hood to, to get that all to work correctly. But the benefits though, I think are much more placed on decreasing bundle size. And it can actually be a pretty easy thing to do with things like dynamic imports. And I think it does take more awareness when you're building out features to make decisions about where to draw those lines. Some frameworks will help you help do that for you. Like uh, if you use Vue, which is something I'm more familiar with, so there's a lot of guides that point you to dynamically including uh, your different pages of the site using the Vue router. And uh, there's some built-in, you know, documentation on uh, on Vue on how to do that. I don't think we have as much of that on the Rails side yet, and it'd certainly be something that some sort of this cross pollination of ideas from these other frameworks could certainly. Be of benefit as uh, for Rails, Rails developers.
2: I'm curious what your sense is for like if there's a a team out there or a developer that that has kind of been seeing all this Webpack stuff happen on the periphery, but hasn't dedicated any time yet to go experiment with it. Can you give us a sense of how much time you feel is necessary that they should expect to spend learning
1: this stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, it will really depend on the needs of your project. I would sort of encourage the iterative approach that I took, since that's what I'm familiar with. I don't think it's, if you're starting with Webpacker on a Rails project, I don't think it's necessary to go learn everything about Webpack before you start. I think that's sort of, I think back to what DHH talks about a lot is that Rails tries to hide a lot of that complexity from you uh, to reduce the startup time to getting your application running. So something like Active Record hides a lot of that complexity of SQL. Uh, It's not something you need to know right away to to get basic application built. Uh, But you do reach those points where you you start sort of hitting the edges of what the framework provides, and you have to dig a little deeper. Uh, And so as we went through the process of migrating through Webpack, we, we definitely hit those edges. And we, some of it was down to where Webpacker had set, sort of set up some assumptions for us. Some of it was actually understanding what Webpack produces when it creates a build. It actually adds code to your output that might take some understanding uh, or might require some learning to sort of push the edges of what something like code splitting or long-term caching concerns uh, might be needed. So for myself, it it actually probably was a good two to three months before I felt like I was from Webpack newbie to at least pretty confident that I understood what was happening when uh, a Webpack build was produced. And, And this included hitting some of the roadblocks and having to go back and maybe step outside of the project I was working on and do some vanilla Webpack. And do some debugging. I think it really helped to do things like load the Webpack config that Webpacker creates for you in a node console. There's actually a way to debug the Webpack build by stepping through in DevTools. There's uh, some hints on the Webpack site for how to do that. And speaking of the, the Webpack site, there's some really great guides that sort of walk you through some of the key concerns and how to set up a Webpack configuration and try out some of these, um, starting with simple ideas and, and more advanced concepts. And uh, the guides have certainly come a long way from where uh, I guess the early versions of, say, Webpack one and two. So I think there's definitely a time investment if the goal is to understand as much as possible. And you could certainly shave a lot of off of that by maybe accepting a less complex uh, Webpack system in order to focus on other areas and you could you can go a long way with just what webpacker provides you i think as soon as you need to do something more complex or or handle concerns of a complex app that you're migrating from sprockets with lots of globals and jquery to something else then it definitely takes more of a time investment but uh it's definitely possible uh i know it uh, for something like Webpack, it can feel overwhelming at first I think one thing I try to remind myself as I went through this process is just to keep a real a positive attitude, and uh, that was really helpful above all else. Having a curiosity to to dig in deeper for something that feels at the outset to be fairly complex, and like like any abstraction that Rails provides, you know, there's there's definitely a sort of push and pull between what you're comfortable with, what it hides from you, and what you need to dig in deeper to to understand to take more full advantage of.
2: Yeah, I'd say Webpack probably suffers a little bit more than other technologies because browsers run JavaScript, right? Some of us have memories of just writing JavaScript and loading that JavaScript file in a browser and watching it run. Going through all of these, you know, preliminary steps just to get your JavaScript ready to be sent to the browser can seem extra frustrating, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think... It's the kind of uh, feeling like it's, you know, I often hear is, you know, why do I have to do all this setup just to get my React or my Vue or my Rails project running? And I think that's what created the need for these framework-provided configurations. Uh, that wasn't always the case. There wasn't a Create React, React app until recently. And even some of the, the more recent iterations in the Vue project have, have improved how, say, the Webpack, configuration can be extended or upgraded i think that's definitely an area for improvement in in the webpacker project Uh, but yes there's definitely that learning curve and that hurdle to getting started that uh, helps contribute to some of the frustration and why why i talk about webpack as a survival game sometimes since we just want to get this thing built but web development has has gotten more complex in many ways As we've learned and built more, I think we've certainly added a lot more overhead to what's required to get things going. I also believe that as browsers catch up to these technologies that we want now, like ES6 and advanced CSS features, some of the need for these extra tools will, will decrease. But whether it's a moving target since we're continually adding new features to the language or not, it sort of remains to be seen. But J- JavaScript and CSS especially feel like two, uh, I guess you could call them languages, areas that are also moving fast. And that's why it's a continually moving target to keep our build tools up to date.
0: One thing that I'm wondering about with all of this, um, we've kind of talked through some of the challenges and things. I'm assuming you've done this with at least one app. What was your experience doing this and how long did it take you to move over from Sprockets to Webpacker?
1: Yeah, it was a good, it was a good three months of very careful planning, sort of starts and stops of doing iterative deployments and pull requests and, and QA. For this particular project, uh, there were a lot of external dependencies that were not Webpack friendly, including some of our own code. So. We also made it a part of our process to convert all of our sort of vanilla JavaScript and some of our copy script. We had sort of a variety of different coding styles. Uh, We converted it all to ES6 as we went. So part of it for the team was learning some of the nature of how ES6 modules work and syntax for import statements and doing things like what we had in sprockets with require tree, which is a really convenient way of including a lot of files in the build. That's not as straightforward to do in Webpack. It's possible It just takes some more learning of APIs. I would say it really will depend on the project and the backgrounds of the folks uh, making the changes. But for us going from Webpack newbie to a fully Webpack-dependent JavaScript build, Definitely took uh, on the order of two to three months, and I feel like uh, we could have gone a lot faster if we had known more about Webpack or it had been through the experience to start with. And you know, some of the challenges like we've covered sort of forced us to take a step back and learn or dive in deeper. In some cases, into the source code to understand what was going on and solve different problems along the way. Certainly, I would hope that if you watched my talk or or read some of the writing I've done on making the change to Webpack, you can avoid some of the challenges that uh, we faced and hopefully hopefully, reduce your time from from start to finish. But you also could certainly reach out, and I try to provide as much help as I can, considering I've been through some of the more challenging aspects of, of making the switch.
0: Yeah, I also had to stand up and move a couple of times. Uh, you know, Somebody came to the door and things. And I may have missed it, but... I've seen some of the upgrades that come in Rails, you know, like Rails 3 to Rails 5 or whatever, you know, people made, they, they had to do some, uh, quite a bit of work to move things along, you know, from one version to the next. And so I'm curious, you know, was this like one giant branch that you worked on forever and ever and ever? Or were you able to move things a piece at a time into packs? And then, kind of have uh, you know Webpackers slash Sprockets for a while, or h- how did that upgrade process work?
1: Yeah, so it definitely was an iterative process. We considered that uh, long-running branch scenario, get everything working at once, and because uh, you know our team was continuing to build uh, features, you know that was one concern. We didn't want to have too much divergence between the fact that we were moving and rewriting JavaScript code to ES6 and building it on a new pipeline. I think uh, trying to try to minimize the impact, we preferred this iterative approach, although it may have in the long run taken longer. It did give us the leeway to learn as we went, to make adjustments to previous decisions we'd made and, and say like how we configured things as we went. So we went in really small pieces. At first, we might move, just one vendor library at a time. So something like jQuery, we would want to make sure if we loaded that through Webpack, it wouldn't break all of our Sprockets JavaScript. And then we would do the same for jQuery UJS, which provides some of the hooks to do AJAX and things like the CSRF token. And then we'd move Knockout over and then we'd move Lodash over. And so some, some of these libraries, uh, as we move them, they might be easy to implement or, change, say, into import statements and and uh, things like that. Uh, others that made assumptions that things like global variables would be available, like uh, the way we had implemented our CK editor integration, you know, those were more challenging. But uh, trying to break it down into chunks so we could kind of understand the problem we were and each one was sort of a different problem to solve was really helpful. And then by the time we got to our own application code, we had learned a lot about some of the pitfalls of certain types of ways of doing things. And it became a little bit more mechanical when we were just moving our own code over. Actually, we built up our own sort of manual dependency tree where you know, we wrote a script to parse every one of our own application files to, because we had followed conventions, like we would always only refer to another module by its global, you know, namespace app. some module, some function name. We could actually see what every file what its dependencies were. So we actually used the script to create a dependency graph of our own modules to then output a list uh, in order of, that we should migrate these files. So we started migrating all the files that sort of represented the leaves of this dependency graph because they didn't have any dependencies themselves. If we migrated those to Webpack, then we could be confident we could rely on, you know, dependencies that had already been migrated as we moved Pieces that were higher up in the tree. So uh, by the time we sort of wrapped up all of that, uh, we were pretty confident in the way that uh, the Webpack build could interact with our existing Sprockets code. And eventually, we moved the final file over, and we could just kill off um, our the output bundles of our Sprockets code. But yeah, these were very atomic multiple PRs and, and QA cycles of trying to get um, these pieces to to work. Side by side, um, so it did take a few months. That's
0: interesting. So I, I'm assuming that moving libraries over is just a matter of uh, having yarn install it and then importing it, like you said. And then for the custom code that needed, you know, to reference that stuff, did you just then move that into packs? Is that kind of the process you went through in order to make sure that it was available as people needed it, or right. did you export it into the global namespace somehow?
1: Right. So not all of our code needed to be exported in the global namespace, but two libraries in particular were jQuery and Knockout. So we needed to reference Knockout code in our own application, or we needed to reference the Knockout library to call, you know, to bind to the Knockout um, way of doing things. And we needed to reference jQuery plugins and the sort of standard jQuery DOM ready and and, and app selection type of of APIs that jQuery provides in our application code. But what we did was just made, assumed that our Webpack JavaScript was input or was basically inserted into our application layout before our Sprockets bundle. So jQuery would be made available by first that order dependence and then providing just a snippet of configuration in our JavaScript code initially to make jQuery globally available. As we moved that code over iteratively, we were able to change some of that configuration to be, rather than assume jQuery is globally available, to actually import it into those modules as we moved them into Webpack. But initially, we made our Webpack build act like a Sprockets global um, reference type of output uh, for certain things like jQuery as we went. We were able to take off some of that scaffolding as we move more things over.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that you kind of had the problem with two jQuery's at once. And I'm trying to envision a scenario under which you could have it globally available and yet still imported and not have that dual nature running. But it sounds like Webpack kind of gave you an option for that.
1: Yeah, so for us to be able to do multiple entry points on one page and make them aware, we had to... Tell Webpack that these two bundles share some assumptions. So unfortunately, the way you would do this in Webpack 3 is completely different than the way you would do this in Webpack 4. But the general concept is use some configuration to say rather than manually put stuff into this vendor bundle, say anything that is referenced in my application bundle that comes out of the node modules file. And so you could there's some test for the path that's on node modules. So jQuery is coming out of the node modules package. If we require that in our application bundle, don't put it in the application bundle, put it in the vendor bundle. And Webpack will understand that the application bundle, when you've done it that way, you've instructed Webpack hey, these, these two things aren't going to be in the same bundle, but they rely on each other. So Webpack will do the work required to make those bundles aware. And uh, it's often used, uh, the term used in, so the Webpack guides is often called the runtime. So Webpack inserts some code in your bundle uh, or one of your output bundles, if you're using multiples like, like like we did, that keeps a list of all the modules you've used. And so it's, it's a manifest of all the modules that can reference each other so they can require each other and, and do the works needed to make this functionality available. And so uh in order to make that work we basically had to use one of these configuration options that mm-hmm. basically said anything that's common should go in this one place so it's not included twice and and webpack will do the work so that these bundles are aware of each other and so it inserts a bunch of code to in within the webpack build to reference its own sort of global variables to mimic the you know the Environment that uh, a real module system might might run in.
2: So I've got uh, a question, kind of to follow on the end of all of this conversation, and that is: Is it worth it in your in your? Mind? <laughs> and, and so uh, it sounds like a trick question, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I've got I've got some opinions about you know, air quote modern JavaScript, but. Let's, let's assume that you've ported everything over now. It's all on Webpack. It's all using ES6 style, that sort of stuff. And how has it changed the team dynamic? How is it like, and your day-to-day development of your JavaScript, you know, portions of your application. Also, what is, and, and to, to add on to that, like what is debugging like for you now when you're viewing your things in the browser? Like how much of that has changed?
1: Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, maybe we'll start with the debugging question first. I think the other one, is, was it worth it, is a great one that uh, has no easy answer. Debugging. Uh, so you know, one thing to keep in mind is, uh, for those who haven't used Webpack before, is you uh, typically in development would have to spin up a second process alongside of your Rails server to get the Webpack assets to be built. So Webpack itself is a, Something like a binary. It's something you can run on the command line to take an input and get an output or many output files. Uh, in the case of doing actual web development, we would typically spin up uh, something that it's called the Webpack Dev Server, and this is a basically a a, a Node server that will serve web requests and have compiled uh, your Webpack output for you based on the way Webpacker will configure things It will know about the Webpacker configuration and it will have URLs basically that map to each one of your bundles or even your CSS or, or images or other assets that you might be putting in the Webpack pipeline. And a really nice set of features um, include things like source maps, which aren't necessarily easily supported, or at least in my experience using Sprockets isn't something that always worked the way I wanted them to, but source maps will actually, basically their uh, browsers will be aware of how to map the bundled output to actual source file in your uh, sort of directory tree that uh, you're working in. So you could basically map to uh, the line of code in your code editor rather than say the line of code in the bundle output itself. And the nature of allowing that process to work is is fairly cool. There's a lot of comments that you might see in the output that sort of will link these URLs to, to the right place. And when you click into your dev tools and if you're using Chrome, you can actually inspect those source files right there in the browser. It's really, and you can actually put debugger statements in there, even though the bundled output looks different. You can, to some extent, play with the source code itself right there in the browser. So to me, that's a huge win. And one, one uh, additional caveat there is that Webpack provides a, a whole bunch of different styles of source map sort of implementation because being able to provide this functionality is, is does have some performance overhead. So there's a ways that uh, uh, the Webpack dev server can be configured to provide you different sort of degrees of specificity when it comes to how these source maps work. So uh, there's a bunch of options you can see on the Webpack guides that will sort of explain more about how these source maps work. It's my understanding that source maps are also enabled in the production builds for your Webpack output, so you can actually debug in production as well if if something perhaps uh, is only available in that environment or only reproducible in that environment. Uh, it's It can be a really helpful way to debug in production. And I also believe that some error tracking tools um, know how to use these source maps. If you were to be able to um, upload these source maps to your bug tracker, There, it might provide you better feedback for when there are errors in your JavaScript code in, in production if you use such a tool. So those are big wins right there. I think having something like the bundle analyzer to be able to visualize the build was uh, really critical for us as we did this migration. So uh, there's other types of stools, tools that uh, Webpack can take advantage of with a bunch of stats that it outputs. So there's still perhaps um, some areas for improvement. So I know that some folks, even if they have things set up pretty well in their configuration, can still run into performance concerns as they uh, output their Webpack build. So debugging, say the time it takes for certain plugins to run, I think is still uh, something that needs improvement for debugging the actual build itself. But overall, the experience, I think, for doing application development is has uh, seen, a, I think, a big improvement with the switch to Webpack. Uh, So that I think kind of speaks to some of the question of like, was it worth it for most of the folks on the team? They don't really have to think about Webpack too much other than occasionally doing a yarn install or making sure their Webpack dev server has the latest code, or maybe, you know, sometimes something like the automatic refresh might not work correctly. So there can be little gotchas with some things like that, but uh, overall, I feel like the development experience has, has really upped, upped the game, especially as we've moved that code to a more modern JavaScript framework. That all said, going back to your original question of, was it all worth it? For us, I'd have to say yes. Uh, I'm not sure, though, I would say I would recommend it for everybody. I think you know, it certainly brought up a lot of positives and a lot of challenges as well, uh, certainly through our experience. And I think it really will depend on the situation. You know, it, if it's something that you're willing to invest in if it's something that you at least have some amount of tolerance for the you know continual upgrades and and reworking of configuration as things change if there is the ability to invest in that and you want to take advantage of you know these development improvements being able to write your code in sort of modern syntax, I think there's a huge amount of wins there. I would say, though, that's not for every team. I feel like, for myself, Sprockets doesn't require a lot of mental overhead. It just kind of, kind of does what it needs to do. For certain applications, I think that's probably all that's required. And, and maybe upgrading doesn't really make a lot of sense. As long as Sprockets is still supported, it could be of benefit. That said, there are other tools besides Webpack out there that might be simpler to understand. I think one that I've used in the past is called Browserify. That can get you some of the wins around things like ES6 six, uh, uh, syntax support, maybe with um, without the mental anguish of some of the configuration challenge of, of, of Webpack.
2: Yeah, thank you for that answer. Um, I Yeah, my my take is I think it might be a little bit overly... Complex, but I I also don't see it going away. Right? It's it's something we're all going to have to come to terms with, and and uh, you know invest the time necessary to to at least get passable uh, experience with it.
1: Yeah, I would uh, have to agree with that. Maybe we'll depend on where the community kind of nets out over the next year or two, and there could be some uh, other changes down the road if if folks are slow to adopt.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Now we're we're kind of at the end of our time. It was one of those uh, topics that there was there was just simply more to talk about. So, yeah, this is terrific. If if people have questions or want to reach out to you, Ross, what are the best ways to do that?
1: So uh, I'm Ross Kaffenberger. My uh, Twitter handle is rosta R O S S T A. It's also my um, GitHub handle. Those are um, two ways you can sort of find me online. You can also find me on my blog at rasta.net. I've got my email on there if you want to send a message as well. Awesome.
0: Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there, the other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the View community. And because they're so closely tied to View and they talk to people about Vue all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the View community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, you want to start us off with picks?
3: Yeah, sure. So I got a new Lego set the other day that I had a blast building with my son. It is the Avengers Quinjet Lego set. So... It was 800-some-odd pieces, but it was super cool to put together. So definitely my first pick. I love Legos. And the second pick, it's kind of an odd one. So in my home office, it is about 85 to 87 degrees normally, like just blistering hot for me. it's because all the computers and stuff have running, so kind of my own fault there. But I got a portable air conditioner, and this thing is amazing. It keeps the room nice and chill. But I had this concern about venting the exhaust pipe out my window because that's directly in my backyard. And my son likes playing with the water hose and I was afraid that he would say, like, oh (laughs) look a hole. And then just start shooting water into my office, which would be bad as well. So luckily one wall is facing the garage. So I just I'm exhausting it through the garage. I cut straight through both drywalls and it's going out the garage and it's perfect. So Super happy about those.
0: Nice. How big a hole saw did you have to get?
3: I actually have a portable jig saw, so I didn't have to get a big hole saw, but I just made a nice little circle with the jig saw.
0: That makes sense. One of the toys uh, tools I don't have yet. (laughs) Nate, do you have some picks for us?
2: Yeah. So this probably won't be news to anybody um, on this podcast, but I've been... I just wanted to give a shout out to the MDM uh, JavaScript reference. So if you're doing any, any heavy lifting in JavaScript and just need to find a good documentation source that is a great reference, head over to MDN. It's fantastic. And my other pick is Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn Trilogy. I've read that twice now, and I've got my youngest reading it, and she is really enjoying it.
0: Fantastic fantasy series. Nice. Uh, one of my buddies from high school actually uh, works for Brandon, selling swag and stuff. And so I got an invite to the launch party for his next book. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited about that. But Very cool. I, I love all of his stuff. So yeah, a plus one on that. And the Mistborn books are really good. Are, are you uh, talking specifically about the original trilogy or are you talking about the new ones with Wax and Wayne? No, it's the original. Okay, good deal. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So I've been playing with uh, doing some live streaming lately. There are two aspects to this. One is that I've opened up doing sort of product demos for sponsors, mostly because I really like the sponsors that we get. If I don't like their product, I I tell them that they can't sponsor. So I, I feel like I want to show it off. And it's like, hey, look, you know, we've got these cool companies that are doing these cool things. So I've been live coding that stuff and then also live coding just some work that I'm doing for the podcast technology. So streaming is kind of an interesting deal. And I've been streaming them on Twitch, twitch.tv. So I'm gonna pick that. The channel's just dev chat TV, and you can go and uh you know follow that. I tend to do it around noon mountain time on days that I do it. So I'll probably wind up doing some live streaming today. But I'm also then using a system called restream.io and that streams it out to Facebook. No, Let's see. I have the list right here. YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, LinkedIn, and it, it streams it to the Facebook devchat.tv page and, the, and my personal feed. So if you're following me on Facebook or you're following devchat.tv on Facebook, you can see what I'm live streaming. And that's that's been way fun. I'm actually looking at pulling together... Not looking at. I am pulling together another podcast network. This one's for shows that are not coding related. I have a friend that wants to do a D&D podcast. I have another friend that wants to do a Disney podcast. My kids were doing Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lego Ninjago, and songwriting podcasts. And so, yeah, just getting all that together so that we have a place to post it and run it and do all that stuff. It's been really, really fun. And so... uh Yeah, I've been live streaming, building that website because I'm doing the same kind of thing that I did for devchat.tv. So yeah, anyway, and it's it's demoing how I'm doing it with Netlify, which is basically free hosting (laughs) for this stuff. So I'm really, really happy with that and uh, loving this stuff. So uh, I'm going to pick all of those, restream. um, I'm going to pick Twitch. And I'm also going to shout out, I've been using OBS to do the streaming. And that's also open source free software. And so, yeah, you just get the, the authentication tokens from Restream, and then you authenticate everything through Restream. And that way, when it goes out, it just goes out to all those places, which is way fun and way cool. So, yeah, can't say enough good things about it. Really enjoying it. And uh, yeah, so look for more content for me out there. And I think that's all I've got. Ross, do you have some picks for us?
1: Yeah, so uh, my first pick is uh, a free online book. We talked a lot about uh, JavaScript modules today without really saying much about what they are or how they work. And one resource that was really helpful for me to understand JavaScript modules more in depth came from this book. It's called Exploring ES6 by Dr. Axel Rauschmeier. It's uh, got a lot of background on all of ES6, but I found the information about modules especially helpful. On uh, sort of a more uh, personal side, I think uh, one thing is I've become a dad. I've got the uh, three-year-old at home. He's a, a lot of fun. I've really been concerned about wanting to remember all these wonderful moments that we have together because uh, he's going to grow up fast. One, uh, and I'm I'm not a big journaler or a, you know a big video or photo taker, but one thing that sort of encouraged me to get in the habit is doing them in really small bits. And one resource I've used uh, is called is an app called One Second Every Day which will allow me to stitch together. If I take a, a video every day uh, of my son, I can actually stitch together one second worth and over a period of a year or more, it turns out to uh, several minutes of of just bite-sized memories. And I can actually remember a bit about each of those little instances. And there, a more analog version of, of this is um, an idea made popular by Gr- the author Gretchen Rubin called uh, The One Sentence Journal. And uh, it's a book I have of uh, 365 or so pages, each with five lines for five, five consecutive years, uh, each covering a certain day. So I'll go to the October 2nd day and write a little sentence about what happened. And I can look back at previous years quite easily and um, just little nuggets to help me remember and have some gratitude for some of the things that, that may have slipped from my mind and, and hold on to some of those, those great uh, memories that I'm making with my son.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Well, one last thing, I have decided to change the tagline that I say when I sign out of the shows. And the reason is, is because I'm working on that maxcoders.io stuff. And ultimately, the the main idea is just maxing out your career and your life for ultimate happiness. And so uh, at the end of the shows, instead of uh, saying, I'll catch you next week, which it doesn't always apply anymore to the shows because we do JavaScript Jabber twice a week and things like that. I'm just going to say max out and I think it's clever. So anyway, because uh, my, my middle name is Max. And so it's Max out as in, you know, max out your life, max out your career. And it's also, uh, I'm out, I'm leaving because my name is Max. Anyway, and so I'll explain a little bit more about what the Max Coders thing is. My Ruby Story episode 100 is coming up in a couple weeks. If you're not subscribed to that show, subscribe to that show because that's where I'm going to talk about it first. I'm also going to be reviving the DevRev. I've kind of been overthinking what I want it to be. And I think I'm just going to, um, I'm going to reboot it and do it the way that I want to do it. So you can also go subscribe to that, the DevRev. It's on uh, it's on devchat.tv. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much the, the whole deal there. So thanks for coming, Ross. We'll go ahead and wrap this up and Max out. Thank you. Max out. Talk to you all later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com to learn more